Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 219 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Zach Pausman about the innovation process. Today's podcast is brought to you by Text Expander, Arag, Ruby Receptionists, and TimeSolve. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. Are we allowed to call Zach Mr. Aaron Gerstenzang? You know, I don't even think we mentioned that during the interview, so we'd better. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Zach is the husband of former podcast guest Aaron Gerstenzang and friend of lawyerists in general. And when I had an opportunity to reach out to somebody to talk about design, I picked him because he's awesome. And I think that'll be reflected in our conversation. Awesome. On a totally different note, <laughs> uh, we are now approaching the one year anniversary of the launch of our Lawyerist Lab program. And we've now had four different cohort classes go through the program, both to do masterminding with each other, to work with our team and outside experts on workshops, and to work through our year of curriculum. And with that year of feedback and learning that we've had by having the program out in the world, we've made a number of significant updates and improvements in time for the one-year anniversary. These include pricing changes and offer changes and timing changes and a whole bunch of other stuff to make the program even more valuable to the lawyers in it. And so if you're interested in learning more, you can go to lawyerist.com lab to check out the new offer offer and try to schedule some time with Stephanie to see if it might be the right fit for you. And let me just say, it feels really gratifying at a year to see reviews like, can I give it six stars? And lab is an amazing value and best decision ever to join. That's pretty awesome. And so if you want to know more about why people say that, go to lawyers.com slash lab, check it out. You can apply. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Scott Clayson from TimeSolve and then my conversation with Zach. This is Scott Clayson. I am the marketing director for TimeSolve Corporation. We provide online time billing and project management solutions for law firms of all sizes. Hey, Scott, welcome back to the podcast. So you've been talking about how lawyers can use their invoices as a marketing tool. Maybe you could tell us more about what you mean by that and how lawyers can do that. I think, Sam, a lot of companies and not just law firms, but a lot of businesses think of working with their customers as a very much a linear journey. It's, you know, point A, you do your marketing to find new clients. You get to point B where you're actually doing the work for them. You get to point C where your job with them has been completed and you send an invoice and you move back to the beginning to point A again. And a lot of smart law firms and smart businesses are starting to understand that it's not a linear journey with your clients, but it really should be a circular journey where you are taking your existing clients and helping them spin around into finding new clients. So it's not just A to B to C, but you have a flywheel that just keeps, you know, generating its own momentum. And when I think of law firms, 
you know, we deal at TimeSolve with the back end, that point C, where you're sending out the invoice, you're doing your billing and all that good stuff. The front end is that, you know, point A, the marketing. Generally, law firms aren't great at the marketing part, aren't necessarily great at the billing part because they're just there, especially for small and solo firms. They just wanted to practice law. That's what they do best. That's what they were trained to do best, right? So how do we connect that C to A and make that circle? And at TimeSolve, we've been thinking a lot about that. And we understand that, you know, let's use your invoice as a marketing tool. And there's a couple of different ways you can go about doing that. First of all, you, you need to consider like, okay, well, how do I use my existing clients, my existing customers to create new business? And the obvious one that a lot of law firms I'm sure have been using for a long time is referrals. You know, if, you know, please send any business, any people you know who might have similar issues our way, so on and so forth. But in this digital age, and especially for those type of law firms, those types of practice of law that find that a lot of their business comes via the internet and through Google searches, it's reviews that your customers leave for you. That is, that's that social currency. Right. That Those are modern referrals, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Those are the modern referrals and we all use it. I mean, you and I, everybody, when we go to Amazon, we're looking for a product, we're going to look at the reviews and not only are we going to look at the reviews, but we're going to look at the number of reviews because mm -hmm. if product A has five stars and product B has five stars, but product B has a thousand people who reviewed it, but product A only has 30, we all lend more you know, value to the crowdsourcing of a thousand people who gave it a five-star review. So there are plenty of spots where you know, law firms know or should know where are people going to be looking at reviews for law firms, whether it's Avo, whether it's Yelp, maybe, whether it's even just Google reviews. But the point is, when you have customers you know are very happy and very satisfied with your work that you've done, ask them to leave a review. And you can do that right in, you should be able to do that right within your invoicing system. In TimeSolve, for example, if you're sending out your invoices via email, and most firms obviously should be sending out their invoices via email. If you're not, you should. But in that body of the email message, you can have an automated call to action for them with links to the various places where you want reviews to be left. You can also customize that because we do know that there's you know, some customers that you don't necessarily feel comfortable asking for a review or you know that there were issues and you just don't want that to happen. In TimeSolve, at least, you can have your blanket email template, but then you can individually as well you know, modify that body of the email for those clients that you know are going to leave good reviews. And we've even we've created a, a review guide essentially on how to go about soliciting reviews with an email template that we use ourselves. And this really came out of the things that we do at TimeSolve with our customers and we know people have been happy with our work we say hey well can you just leave a review for us in the places that we know are important for us in attracting new business and it dawned on us that like wow law firms really could be doing the same thing because it's just as important for them with their online presence to have you know these glowing reviews should be on your website put them on your website if you have them as well as you know having them in the various directories where people might be looking for for legal work yeah, that's kind of the modern currency of how you know somebody is good or trustworthy. And I think it's interesting that you point out that the number of reviews can be really significant, um, not just the content of the reviews. I, I think a lot of people are suspicious of five-star reviews, but it's unquestionable that if a thousand people have reviewed you, the law firm is, unless they've hired robots to do that, they've had a lot of customers who were willing to take that extra step for them. So, And frankly, a lot of the places, at least for us, that um, we ask for people to submit reviews, they have to verify that they're leaving the review mm. to avoid that type of like, oh, it's just like this, you know, they got this, you know, Russian troll farm or whatever it might be that 
is is submitting reviews for you that most of these services, the people who leave the reviews, they have to like essentially verify it through a, um, an email, two-way authentication, whatever it might be. But you're right that that is the the currency that we we all hold value in, and law firms should be really constantly thinking about that when they're doing their invoicing because that's a great time to hit them up for those reviews. If you'd like to learn more, there's a white paper about how to get more reviews, which includes an email template that you can use at go.timesolve.com slash how to get more reviews. And we'll include that link in our show notes. Thanks, Scott. Hey, thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Hi, Sam. I am Zach Kausman, and I run a company called Helpfully. Hopefully is a sort of consultancy, I guess is the best way to describe it. We help companies and we help our clients solve their business problems by using design and design thinking specifically. Hopefully is based in Atlanta, Georgia, and we are often working with clients across a wide range of industries. So what that looks like is sometimes we're talking to financial services giants, other times to to healthcare companies or to health and wellness kinds of companies. We also spend time talking to tech startups and old line companies of every sort. So we are a pretty broad set of client companies and industries that we work in, but always thinking about finding a new way and a better way. Well, hey, Zach, welcome to the podcast. I'm curious. So when you talk about um, the kinds of clients you work with, when is it that someone would be better off sort of learning how to employ design thinking themselves versus when is it time to bring in an outside designer? That's a great question. I'm of the opinion that... Granted, you're biased, but... (laughs) uh, I was just going to admit, you should always bring in a very expensive consultant. No, I actually don't think that at all. And I want everyone who's listening to this to know that the best way to learn about design and to learn design methods is to just try them. So I believe that all of us have the capability to use uh, the tools and methods of design. And you'll know when you're out of your depth, right? You'll try it. And if it isn't working to your level of satisfaction or to to the quality bar that you need and want, well, then go and get the specialist that you need for that piece, for that moment, um, for that step in in the process. Maybe it's when you're stuck, like when you find that you aren't able to find your way through the problem on your own, it's time to get some fresh perspective on it by bringing in someone else. Yeah, you might be stuck or you might you might just be unsatisfied, right, with the work that you can do or, or that you're, you mm-hmm. and your team, right, can accomplish. It might not be stuck, but it might not be working, right? And, and I think that could be quantitative. You might have data, right, to back you up on that uh, that sense, or you might just have kind of the qualitative sense gnawing at your belly that, that it isn't um, as good as it could be. So gotcha. I think, um, let me l- let me say one thing about that. I think, you know, a lot of people, and I think people who are listening to this podcast think about design a certain way. They think about design as a very creative endeavor. It's something only specialized people can do with special right. training. And and it is a place where, you know, design is a is a rarefied thing. And it's only done by <laughs> people who have, yeah, the right kind of offices with lots of blonde wood. They drink very expensive coffee. You have to eat a lot of avocado toast, right, to be a good designer. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that design is far broader than that. And, and, and far more helpful is, is to think about design as a way of solving problems 
And all of us have problems in our business, right. and all of us can use these design tools. You you don't need to think of design as, as the, the time you spend holding the paintbrush or holding the Sharpie marker. Design is actually something we all do and we all have, which is the ability to look more carefully at the world. I think that's where design starts. And so you don't need a consultant to help you look at the current state of the world, the current state of your business the current state of, of, of how things are today, and then to find in that looking new ways, right, new opportunities, problems, frictions, challenges that your clients might have uh, and help them, you know, help close those gaps. That, that's what design is. Yeah. Design is really just problem solving and not necessarily just the parts of the process that include, you know, can you accurately or can you depict Michelangelo's David, right, from memory uh, with a Sharpie marker on a post-it note that isn't what design is. So what I would like to do today is talk about the nuts and bolts, not the philosophical stuff, because we've covered some of that in previous podcasts. And what I'd like to do is help people who are persuaded that design thinking is a good thing and that they want to start employing it in their practice and help them understand how to do this. And I'm thinking of some design thinking exercises that I've been through, and I'd like to try and sort of walk our listeners through what that might look like. So maybe we could just take a, a sort of a vague example of onboarding a new client or customer and walk people through the process. Although I suppose we should probably start by explaining like, what does the process look like? What are the steps, the four or five or six or whatever steps that you go through, depending on which model you use? Yeah, I think there are many models for what the actual design process could look like. The one that I like best has four steps. And you could think of those as uh, connected in the following way. They are, you know, the step one is going to be about understanding. Design is, is often, right, requires mm -hmm. us to look at the world. And so that one will be divergent, right? You're going to explore a particular part of the space. And then once you've done that exploration and started to find a bunch of interesting problems uh, that could be solved or ways in which the world is working that it could be working better, you'll start to converge. You'll start to, you know, winnow down and take a, take a more convergent view. How do you synthesize that? How do you distill things down into their uh, essential form and nuggets? And then again, right, so that's step two. Uh, and then in steps three and four, again, the same thing will happen. We will explore, right, now that we have a better sense of what exactly problem we need to solve is going to look like. Mm -hmm. uh, and we will explore the, the sort of design options we have. And then that final fourth step is, again, a, a convergence step, now winnowing down, synthesizing, distilling it down into a single solution, right, that we could launch out into the world. I guess one of the really core pieces of that, which is maybe different than how other people think about things, is that design thinking is a problem-solving exercise. And in order to solve a problem, you can't assume that you understand what the solution is going to be when you start. That the first two steps are about understanding what the problem is and starting to figure out specifically which piece of it you're going to try and solve, right? That's exactly right. I think it's important. Designers have a way, right, that they can withhold their solutions mm -hmm. and not necessarily jump directly into, oh, well, what I need is a better, you know, a better email. Right. What I need is a better platform. I think uh, if you jump already to the solutions, you're skipping over, right, some of the valuable parts of, of what design thinking is going to bring you. And so when we get into the, you know, granular, you know, moment-by-moment -moment details, I think, yeah, I think the best way to start that is, is with that open mind, the beginner's mind, where you might look at your practice uh, with the eyes of a, of a beginner. 
So you, it's a very questioning place to, to begin, right? Why do we do it the way we do it? Well, it's how we've always done it. <laughs> you gave me a funny, when we were talking about, when we were prepping for this podcast, you gave me the example of like, who says a toilet is the right way to get waste out of our bodies and into the sewage system? Like when you're shopping for a toilet, a designer who is really devoted to their craft may start from, I need to get waste out of my body into the sewage system, not um, I need to go find a toilet. <laughs> That's right. I think, um, I think... Everywhere you look, it is designed, right? Mm -hmm. So everything you touch, every artifact, and many of the experiences that you have, right, are also pretty orchestrated and carefully crafted. And, you know, the more you look, the more you can see that, you know, the world that we inhabit, the world you live in is full of designed things. The cup on your desk, the way your printer plugs in, the power strip behind that printer that's got a big rat's nest of cables around it. All of those things are moments which are potentially, right, open for design. And let me come back to the toilet and say, yeah, the perspective that we take, and I know we, we, we want to get granular, so we will in just a second. Mm -hmm. But philosophically speaking, I think we often assume that everything is as good as it could be and that all of the toilets that you look at at Home Depot or wherever you might shop for your toilets are, are optimal, are the right ones. Like these are the right options. And you'll just pick, right, from these mm -hmm. optimal solutions to that problem of, of going to the bathroom. But <laughs> if you go to other places, and I just think like um, think like a cultural anthropologist would, he or she would be, you know, traveling to distant lands. And Sam, not all toilets are the same. Right. So even though, you know, we live in the Western world, at least most of the people listening to this podcast probably do, the toilets that exist in other cultures and in other environments are very different and they work differently, but that's not necessarily to say that one is better or worse. Right, because they're trying to solve different problems. Related but different problems. And they have yeah. and they have a you know, a very cultural perspective, right, as to <laughs> what it means, right, to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So so I think that's just a great example of opening your mind, right? Thinking like a beginner is no matter what room you're in, no matter how your current, you know, practice works. No matter how you onboard clients today, you can look at it with that beginner's mind, right? With the mind of that anthropologist who's going to question, like, is this really the optimal thing? Is that really what people need and want? Is that, as you said, does that, what are we optimizing when we're doing that optimization? So that's that first step is understanding uh, of our four-step process. Yeah, and when we're in that step, when the understanding step, that's where I hear designers talk a lot about the importance of getting out and actually like talking to people, observing people, learning from people. So if it's client onboarding, I, I guess, am I right in assuming that here, um, what you should be doing is not just like talking about what I need to do is get certain information from the client and make sure they understand what I expect of them and make sure they've paid me and signed a retainer and that stuff. You should go further than that probably and interview your clients about what expectations do they bring to the beginning of the relationship and um, what are their concerns and things at that point, right? Like, is, is that, am I on the right track there? You're absolutely on the right track. I think that there are just sort of three steps to uh, to this understanding phase. And I think the first one you mentioned is, is the talking to people phase or even visiting people in their environment. Yeah. So if you think about just talking to them over the telephone, uh, having some conversations with potentially like current clients, right, who've been through your onboarding experience, but who might have other kinds of relationships uh, that, that, that you might, right, just ask them about and say, hey, when you onboarded into our firm, when you became a client, what was it like? And they might remember certain elements of that. They might not remember very much at all, right? It might, it might have just been all administrative and administrative and nothing might, you know, might stick out, right, as a, as a memory, especially if they were, you know, that, if that onboarding happened a year ago. 
mm-hmm. you might remember very little. I think when you're, you know, when we think about interviewing or visiting clients, I think your job is to go in without your solution in mind. Don't don't pre-solve right. for them. Ask Just open-ended say, questions rather than yeah. Yes, and and ask maybe when when I when it comes to onboarding, I think uh, people have had good and bad experiences being onboarded. It may not be your firm, but it could be you know another experience where you know you needed to get started in in a relationship. And when I think about onboarding. I think about that as really the creation of a relationship, as you already mm-hmm, hinted, right? Sure. It, it creates a legal relationship where, where clients sign retainer agreements or they become in other ways. There's a contractual relationship to be formed. There's also the professional and collaborative relationship. How will that relationship look and work? Is somebody the lead and somebody the follower? And whether that's the client is the lead and, and you, the firm, are, are, are serving right them who are going to lead this this relationship, or is the relationship the other way? Are you the lead and the client is the person who who needs your help, but obviously needs a, a lot of your guidance as well? And you, as the as the firm, right, are going to sort of be the the, the driving force, right, of the conversations that happen. And then, just third thirdly, there there's also kind of that personal thing, right? Think about the emotional side of a of a of a new relationship, onboarding someone to your firm, just legal and not just professional, but it's also some, in some ways personal, right? You need to form a, a, a personal bond or personal, you know, relationship with that person. So there's really more going on right. uh, than, than it appears at first glance, just like the toilet, just like the printer that's on your desk. When you look at it at first glance, you're just like, oh, all clients need to do is sign forms. I think and most then- problems are more interesting when you dig into them than when you look at them at first glance, especially if you think you already know the answer. That's right. Because, <laughs> and, and that's what I mean when I say the best tools of a designer are not the paintbrush or the Sharpie. The, the best tool of the designer are, are the eyes and ears that are in your head right. and, and attached to you. Your job as a designer is to be critical and, and look harder at the world because the, the more critically, the more carefully we can look at the world, the more you'll see and the more you'll open up, right, for those conversations, right? So that interview could be very, very wide ranging. One of the things I think I'm hearing you say is like a way to practice this is to, as you go about the world, to wonder about why things are the way they are, which is different than being annoyed by the things that make you unhappy. Like that could be a trigger, but the question to ask then is, well, I'm annoyed by this or I'm pleased by this. I wonder why it was designed this way. Because that's sort of like exercising your muscle on understanding and and trying to think in terms of problems, not solutions. I think that's right. I think the next time, you know, I would just give give a couple of, of pointed examples of places where you could watch a process unfold and, and sort of try to do some of that noticing. Mm-hmm. Um, the next time you go to a restaurant and you walk in through the front door, what happens? Mm. So, you know, restaurants have many different ways, right? Especially in today's world of, you know, you've got your fine dining restaurants. You've got these more casual places. Um, you've got fast food places. They're all going to have a different way. Uh, that they work. And so it's another place, right, to notice either frictions or frustrations or little moments of delight where you might be greeted by a person who's standing at a podium and he or she might have a tablet computer and she would ask you, do you have a reservation? I'd say you're probably more likely to notice this in chains or fancy restaurants. In the middle of the road, they may just not even think about how to greet people. (laughs) Uh, They may not. They yeah. may not. And I think that, that, that defaults are also designed. So right. even though that's, that's not optimal, point. let's agree. Sam and I probably agree, right? It's not optimal just to have someone grunt in your direction and wave you to a table mm-hmm. uh, or no host at the, at the host stand. I think that's also a choice. And that's right. also a valid choice. 
some restaurants are very casual or coffee shops, for example, are, are a certain way that, that they onboard you into that environment in a certain manner. None of those are bad or good. It's just a question of where the company or, or the, the restaurant, in this case, right, chooses to focus their efforts. Right. The question is not, are they bad or good? The question is, are they meeting the goals of the person who created that process? Absolutely yeah. right. So I think when, you, when, when you're at your firm and you're thinking through your onboarding, I don't want everyone to get worried. As, as we talk, Sam, mm-hmm. I think we, we might be creating some worry in people's <laughs> minds. Oh, my gosh, I need to design every single moment at a 10 out of 10 level. And I don't think that's possible in, in a lot of cases. You'll need to pick where are the places where I'm going to allow a default like, oh, see yourself, just a sign, right? You hang in the window. That is a default moment. Fine. You've made a choice. But I want people to be more intentional about when they decide how to do that right. instead of saying, oh, every single moment has to be over-designed or over-engineered or overthought, right? I don't want people to leave this and think, oh my gosh, I've just been assigned a hundred items for my to-do list. I'd rather you just have three or four on your to-do list where you think you can stand out as a firm or you can stand out as a, as a client service organization yep. and do those 10 out of 10 and then just allow some things to be defaults, at least for now. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the step where you narrow and define the problem that you're trying to solve a bit. And then we're going to move on to the second half of the design process. We'll be right back. With Text Expander, you can use gathered snippets of information as you type using a keyboard shortcut or custom abbreviations. Don't waste time typing out things you've already worded perfectly. Capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Lawyerist Podcast listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. So visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and claim your discount. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your chosen area of law without spending time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. ARAG is a leader in legal insurance, and it works a lot like medical insurance. When you become a provider on the ARAG network, you consult with and represent clients for various legal issues, from writing a will to dealing with bankruptcy or divorce. ARAG does the rest, seriously. They'll connect you with new clients, they'll pay you directly, they'll even collect client feedback and share it with you so you can keep growing your business. Visit araglegal.com slash lawyerist, that's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist, to join the network for no fee and start growing your practice. And it is all about the growth. In fact, more than 90% of ARAG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something goes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com slash lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, helping legal professionals like you deliver legendary service and grow your practice with live receptionist and chat services. At a fraction of the cost of a full-time hire, Ruby's live U.S.-based team greets your clients personally when they call or visit your website. Ruby can route calls to you or connect chats to call based on your customized directions. Your live receptionist can collect new client intake, answer frequently asked questions, and make follow-up calls. Ruby streamlines billing with call tracking and Clio Rocket Matter and Clio Grow integrations. Ruby can send messages to you via the mobile app, email, or text, and much more, helping you grow your firm. Thousands of solo and small firm attorneys across the country rely on Ruby to turn callers and website visitors into clients. And now you can try Ruby for free. 
Call 844-715-7829 today or visit callruby.com slash podcast to get started with your 14-day free trial. That's 844-715-7829 or callruby.com slash podcast. So we're back and Zach, we kind of talked about understanding and defining a bit together, but maybe it's worth saying a few words about what it looks like to, once you've done all your research and you understand sort of the, the universe of things that you might need to solve for, how do you narrow that and define the actual problem that you're going to try and solve? Yeah, I think taking the interviews or, or, or client visits that you've done and turning them into a current state customer journey is a valuable step. So that's kind of the, that's one of the ways that we summarize and synthesize you mean kind of what you're doing now we have yes i think it's good to look at today's world the world as it is mm-hmm. uh, of onboarding and say how are we onboarding people today and then using those interviews also to help you identify right places where that could be better or where a good company does it better so i think in the interview process i would recommend asking can you remember a relationship that you started with a company or a moment that an onboarding was just wonderful And then they'll give you a great example from a piece of software that they've used or the way Disney.com unfolds that experience, even long before you get right into the park and start to, you know, ride rides. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of onboarding that happens on a, you know, one of these vacations or or other, you know, elements of, of a person's life. Ask around, not just for comparing your firm and, and your law firm to other law firms, compare yourself to the rest of right, someone's life. Oh, I was onboarded by this credit card and it was wonderful or, you know, whatever. But I think, I think taking the, the findings you have and those conversations and turning them into a customer journey. And let me just state for the record, let me simplify that and say, that sounds complicated. It sounds hard. <laughs> it, 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 it can be very complex. And, you know, my firm can, can spend many weeks creating a customer journey map. However, all you need to think is it's a timeline where things unfold over time and they might have names for the phases. So in the first phase, you're in the pre-sale mode and we send you a proposal, right? I'm thinking like I'm, when I say I there, I'm the law firm. I send my prospective client a proposal and you just need to put that on the timeline. And then the timeline has the next step, which would be the client either sends back a yes, looks great, or here are my suggested edits or, you know, or no thanks, right? And then there's, you know, there's some some choices, right, which happen at, at that next step. And then, of course, when the client eventually agrees, and then it's like we send you a finalized contract, right, to uh, to to sign. If that's how it works at your firm, those are just those three steps on a timeline. That's all you need to think about when you're when you're kind of defining the the world as um, as it is, and documenting, I, I guess, a little bit mm-hmm. your current process. Gotcha. So that is just a simple way to synthesize down what's happening now and using your interview insights, right, to kind of pepper through those and say, hmm, clients did it totally ignore this part or, man, this, this looks really frustrating. I think that that's just a nice way to encapsulate, right, our understand phase. Yeah. And so the next comes like now that we've checked or investigated our assumptions, we get to make a thing or we get to figure out a thing, right? Yeah. And and. <laughs> The tool I like for this kind of defined step is called the jobs to be done kind of approach. Gotcha. And I think what you want to do is, let me simplify that. That that can also be many weeks and many months, right, of consulting work to, to, to do. It can also be done in, in an hour. And what you need to define is what is happening in that onboarding process? What is the real job to be done? Mm-hmm. And as I already hinted, or at least I, you know, I really believe that 
a lot of life is more than just the functional, right? We buy a phone because it's going to allow us to stay connected and have these apps on it and whatever. But in some other ways, like we use our phone as like a security blanket or it's a way to brag that we have the latest technology. Right. And I'm sure you've experienced them. <laughs> Sometimes when you sit down with a friend at a bar and you know, you're talking w- with him, they take out their new phone and they very explicitly place it onto the table in a very peculiar way, right? (laughs) Drawing attention, right, to the fact that they're the kind of person who has these nice new technology devices (laughs) in their life. There is an emotional or identity-related part of of phone having, right, of of using, right, a, a mobile device. Sure. There's not just the functional side. There's these other sides. And I want your listeners to know that it's okay to to investigate them, right? It's okay to to ask those questions. Beyond just the functional requirement that is a client signs a contract and becomes my client, some more robotic or, or, or analytical functional need, they also have these emotional needs. And especially for some parts of law where it is about your life, your business, your personal liberty as a person, you are very emotionally invested in both this relationship, but also in the frictions, right, that, that, that it's going to take you to, to, to get across that finish line. I think there's a lot of client's self which is being brought to the table, and I think that shouldn't be ignored. I think instead you should try to find a way to embrace that in your onboarding process. So when you think about the job to be done, I think there are functional needs So you can kind of put a bulleted list together of like, what are those analytical, what are those factual things that are going to be required for the job to be done, but also explore the social side or the emotional side of the job to be done. If your firm deals with young people who've been charged with crimes, you might have the young person as your client, but you definitely also have his or her family as a important contributor Right. right to that. And th- those people might even be the funder, right, of this person's criminal defense work. That creates an interesting new relationship dynamic. And you need to onboard both the person who's charged with a crime and his or her family. That might be an important, right, step in your process. Right. Or you might need to onboard, right, not just the CEO of the company, but also the CFO, right, if you deal with legal manners or financial kinds of things. So I think Having a better sense, right, of the job to be done for your onboarding will give you this definition of what are we really trying to solve here? What's my actual objective? And not just the objective that I assume might be, that we've always assumed, right? We, we often go in, right, with all those assumptions about the world is just the way the world is. And this is how the, you know, this is the only way that, that, that something could happen. So, so how do we move from the jobs to be done to coming up with the solution that we actually want to make? Yeah, I think the end of that process, uh, once you've got yourself a, a clear view of what the job to be done is, you'll often come back to your customer journey and say, okay, given what I've defined as my real job to be done, and given what I've learned through this process, you'll make an updated customer journey map. And you'll mm-hmm. just take the timeline that you did first of today's world, today's process, today's onboarding, and you'll say, how would I improve my onboarding? Where are those friction points or pain points that I've identified and that the job to be done has pointed me to, the job pointed me to, hey, I require clients to physically print out a piece of paper, sign it, scan it, and email it back to me. Is there a faster way, a better way? Is that something that that was brought up on my interview? So you're both looking for improvements to your existing system and opportunities to make just the whole thing better with a new process or a new set of forms or a new piece of software or a new tool, whatever. 
exactly right. I think in some of those, we would call those just opportunities for optimization. We would optimize mm-hmm. an existing flow. And in other cases, I think our, you know, your your interviews and, and this jobs to be done kind of approach of creating, right, just a bulleted list of what are those real jobs that people need done. I think you might find whole new opportunities, right? Those are not just optimizing the flow. Yeah. And it sounds like the jobs to be done helps keep people focused on what are you trying to accomplish here, not flipping switches in your whatever software it is that you've already got. And it, it, it must involve some judgment around like, you know, is this the best tool for what we're trying to accomplish? But because I feel like a lot of times people get stuck in the weeds of like tweaking their technology or shopping for software or things like that. And if you have well-defined jobs to be done, if you've actually like written them down on a whiteboard at some point, maybe that helps keep you focused on the goal rather than the minutia. I think that's right. I think you should you should consider the tools in this next step. Explore what tool is right for the task instead of coming in and saying, oh, all I need to do is fix up the way my current, you know, web-based CRM works or my current practice management tool that, that, that I've got implemented. I think far better to come at it w- with those open eyes and say, now we'll begin right in that second exploration phase mm-hmm. of designing. We'll, we'll, we'll explore some options. That's where tools come in. I do not think you should be thinking about tools w- when you're defining the job to be done. Let's talk about design, though. So like when when you say design, like this is the whole design thinking exercise, right? So when you say this next stage is design, what does mm-hmm. that look like? Now's the time. Yeah. Yeah. Now's the time <laughs> when you get out your, uh, your, your paintbrush, but in this case, probably more a, a Sharpie, I think you want to explore, given some, some, some clarity and definition on, you know, oh, my onboarding process needs the following five different optimizations. And I found this other new thing that we probably should be doing, which is onboarding the family members in a better way. Or we should be having a more structured conversation as we, you know, define our relationship together and who's going to lead and who's going to follow. Well, mm-hmm. that's a those are that's a might be right for for you and your firm a brand new opportunity right to to, to think through that better. This sounds like drawing. Is there a lot of drawing involved? <laughs> now is the time. You're going to get your sharpies. You're going to get your post-it notes. No, but I, let me let me state. I think it's important to realize when you say drawing. I think the answer is yes. But yeah. let me say yes and. It's also writing. It's also carefully scripting a a conversation. For example. Mm-hmm. That is a kind of design. You're designing a conversation, and that might be something that you need to, you know, put down on paper, draw some of it out, put an outline together for a conversation. That can be very carefully crafted. And mm-hmm. and, and when I say that, I just mean you've designed it, and you didn't design it necessarily with a sharpie and 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 with your post-it notes. But I think that is also design. Yeah. And I'd say similarly. You might have an email that comes out and says, hello, the next step in your onboarding, of course, is to pay your retainer agreement. I'm just uh, mm-hmm. you know, thinking through, through that onboarding. Well, now it's time to pay. How does that email talk? What is the tone of it? Are we already you know, assuming that you are, are a client and have, have signed? Are we, is this a mere formality or is it something that is like now it is the big choice, right, that a prospective client needs to make. I think what you're saying is you're trying to describe how you want things to happen, how you want them to feel, the impressions you're trying to make, not necessarily writing out the script, or are you writing out actual scripts at this point? If there's copy to be drafted, or if there's a conversation to be had, how granular do you get here? I would get pretty granular, and I would come up with, I think this is the exploration phase, so Mm -hmm. you would be 
potentially granular about the email copy that you're writing, what what visuals need to go in it, what you know, what is going to be bolded and not. And you might come up with not just one option, of course, but like designers do, they explore inside of that of that moment in the customer journey. So instead, she's going to create three different options for mm-hmm. how that email could talk, and three yeah. you know three different. Um, kind of graphic headers, right, for, for for how it could look. And you might also be in the exploration phase, exploring what email delivery mechanisms you want to use, or how does this look on a mobile phone? I would assume that many people are going to look at the emails that your firm writes on their phones. They might even wish to sign their paperwork on their phones. Well, now is the time, of course, to look at your tools and how they look when they're shrunk down to uh, to a small screen or clicking through from the email to your uh, bill payment system or, or financial systems. How does that flow look and work? Well, this is the exploration phase where where now, as you've smartly said, tools are have been pushed, right? We push them out of the definition of the of the real problem to solve, but we put them in this design bucket. So now in this third phase of designing is where we want to to really engage with what tool is right for us to deliver the experience that we need to deliver. But this is also meant to be a, you're not meant to commit yet, right? Like you shouldn't, this is not the place to be shopping for $10,000 software. This is the place to be figuring out what you want to happen. And then I think what we do, I mean, maybe $10,000 is acceptable when you're working for an enterprise, but for most small firms, that's probably ridiculous. Um, because the next phase is to like try and figure out how to test these concepts, right? And come up with the ones that we're going to test and then see if it works or not. Exactly right. I think that your job is maybe to try out tools or to see what it looks like to have a $10,000 solution, yep. right? To, to the problem you have. So I think it's an explicit part of the design, you know, steps because it's valuable before you make a commitment, before you make a decision. To, um, to be sure that, that, that you've chased down all the options. So I think it might be worthwhile. And then in this phase is where you would sign up for some free trials. I think that's always fun. And of course, those would all have their own onboarding experiences. And you could maybe learn even about onboarding while you're onboarding. Do you do things though, like I've heard designers talk about, um, you know, before building a website to draw it on paper, um, draw the workflow on paper and like every time somebody clicks by tapping on a piece of page, they put a different page in front of them Absolutely, because it's expensive to build a website, but it's cheap to draw on a paper with Sharpie and you can sort of test your workflows that way without having to hire a web developer or do anything else. No question. I think being able to build something in this design phase to give you some options mm-hmm. that you can evaluate or, or validate, but I, mm-hmm. I love the word validate. Better, yeah. Yeah, but you want to validate those ideas or validate that flow of emails. You would want to give those drafts to someone at the firm, but even somebody outside the firm and say, hi, we're working on this stream of, or, you know, this is the place where we've, you know, defined a specific opportunity or found a place where people have had trouble. And now we want to solve it. Here are the places, here are the interactions that that are going to happen. Here are the places where people are going to intersect with us. And, And this is number one and number two and number three can I show you each of them? And now you're going to give me some feedback. I think Mm -hmm. absolutely right. This makes me think of like um, when lawyers moot an argument, right? Like if you're going to be before the Supreme Court on a really important issue, you're probably going to invite a few other lawyers or, or, or judges or retired judges over and pay them or buy them donuts or something to have them pretend to be the Supreme Court so that you can try and figure out where the flaws in your argument are. I, I think this is a very, very similar idea where, you you know, validating your concept is 
Absolutely um, right. mooting your concept, basically. You're going to moot this. You're going to yeah. debug the the approach you have and the directions that, that, that you've decided to take. You're going to find out whether they hold water, whether they improve the experience. If people say, oh, my God, I love this, you know you're onto something good. If people say, huh, I'm not quite sure I'm following right, the connection between you know, these two pages of the flow or how this form is related to the email that I get afterwards. You know, those pieces of the onboarding process, I think it's absolutely right to test them in their lowest fidelity possible. So that's what we would say kind of, you know, the technical way, the, the consulting nerd way to talk yeah. about that is we would, we would say like test at very low fidelity, evaluate and validate your ideas at a low fidelity before you do any final creative, before you go and spend the time and effort uh, and money to actually launch something far, far cheaper, right? To test right. it as opposed to, and know that, that, that you're onto something smart. What do you do with the results you get? Like, let's say as part of your client greeting process, you've decided that you want to kind of brand your firm and by offering full service espresso bar at the front door. So somebody walks in and you have a really nice espresso machine. And after a few weeks, it turns out that nobody has used it. Um, it strikes me that there could be a number of things going on, but that it's too probably too early to just say the experiment was a failure. So like, how do you take that and start taking apart the results you get, especially when it's something complicated? Like it's not just, there's probably not a yes, no answer to a lot of these things. There's probably a period where you're trying to figure out why it didn't work and if you can fix it. No, and I think also you're, you're absolutely right. Let me go further and say, when you're onboarding clients, all the people listening to this are successfully onboarding them. Right. I mean, they may not be happy. They may be <laughs> what I would, those clients might be what I'll describe as muddling through. They mm -hmm. might be muddling through your current set of onboarding tools and, and your onboarding steps, but they're getting through because you're a successful offer. And you know, you, you are, you are winning, right? So, some of these, and you might be causing people all kinds of, of hair pulling frustration or friction or uh, suboptimal right experiences. But you have uh, what I'll just say is like survivorship bias. You've seen all of these people get through the gauntlet mm -hmm. and therefore you assume that it's got to be pretty good because here are my current clients, right? It's working uh, for some definition of working. Th that's a true statement. You mm -hmm. are, right? Clients need what you have so much that they're willing to, right, go through any and all of the steps that your process lays out for them. Yeah. Although lack of alternatives is kind of a terrible thing to fall back on. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think that <laughs> firms actually are, you know, would certainly benefit from from competing not just on uh, clarity of, of legal argumentation or the solidness of the legal representation that they deliver. I think it's also really important to be the kind of client service organization that people enjoy working with. It turns out that that's, if you look at, just as a, for example, if you look at doctors, uh, surgeons, what gets them sued uh, for malpractice, medical malpractice, isn't that they're ineffective at doing the surgery. It's not mm -hmm. the technical competency. It's actually bedside manner. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a really good Malcolm Gladwell uh, point that he makes in a, in a book. But the same thing is true for lawyers, right? right? The technical competency you have is one of the ways you're being judged. But the actual day-to-day -day experience that someone has with your firm is, in fact, probably much more visible to them, to him or her. Your client is seeing the emails. They're seeing their lack of emails, right, for many weeks while things are happening at your firm. 
that they don't have any window into. And I guess like you just said something that really made me think that, yeah, your technical competency is being judged by the judge. <laughs> you know, like it's, there's by a third party. To your, yeah. There's a third party to yeah. your attorney client relationship that cares about whether or not you're a good lawyer. Your client obviously wants to win or not, but yeah, they're judging you much more on your bedside manner. They're judging you on the experience that they have. Mm -hmm. And I think when you go to test these things, when you go to test the espresso machine that you might put in your in your waiting area, I think, you know, don't fall victim to the idea that just because everybody succeeds in getting through your, your gauntlet mm -hmm. of onboarding, that is the right. success. I think there's power in digging deeper, right? Dig past people getting through the through the funnel. One of the things we recommend to our clients also is to go to clients who don't convert. Mm -hmm. If you can, how about a client who did not take you up on the relationship? Yeah, right. That's probably way more valuable information there. If they're willing to give you even 15 minutes of their time mm -hmm. to say, why didn't you pick my firm? Why didn't you pick us to represent you in this matter? You will learn a lot. And you yeah. might learn something about just the market in general, but you might also learn something about onboarding. And of course valuable to to test those iterations, but also not be afraid of failure. So I want all your listeners to know that sometimes you're going to have a really smart idea, something you think is valuable, but because partly you're just using your existing framework, you right, the existing way the world is, this is how lawyers need to talk. This is what lawyers should sound like or what a law firm should look like. Well, you might be a little stuck, right, in the way lawyers do it today. And not necessarily taking advantage, right, of better, smoother, frictionless, beautiful, elegant ways of, uh, of accomplishing some of these things that are more prevalent in, in other domains and uh, in other industries. Well, in my experience, I find that I can't solve something with a simple solution until I've solved it eight different ways with complicated solutions. And then finally, the simple solution emerges and I smack myself on the forehead and, and it's fixed and it's wonderful. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> that's the, And that's the magic of Apple, right? Yeah. Apple stuff isn't simple at the beginning, it's simple at the end, right? right. It, it, their design process results in simplicity, but often begins with obviously a ton of complexity. The, the beauty, right, of a smart onboarding method and the beauty of a beautiful iPhone or iPod is hiding away the complexity until just the right moment to say, hey, we just need one more little piece of information that will help us with your case. And putting things in the right order, grouping them together in, in smart ways, are the ways that you're going to improve your onboarding, just like Apple has carefully crafted that simplicity, right? That apparent simplicity is the result of tons of complexity. So to like to close the loop on my espresso machine example, <laughs> since I brought it up, I figure I should not leave it totally hanging there. I want to suggest, I think, um, and you can tell me if I'm on the right track or not, that what's important when something works or doesn't work according to your requirements, your jobs to be done, I think what's important if it doesn't work is to ask why or how did it not work, right? For my espresso machine, like maybe my core clientele are just not espresso people. Maybe they're really polite and considerate and they didn't want to make anyone go to the trouble of making a cup of fancy coffee for them. Maybe they didn't understand what the machine did because we didn't introduce it. There's a whole bunch of different reasons. Analogize this to, for example, when lawyers ask, does social media work for marketing? You know, there's yes for some, no for others. The important thing is how does it work and why would it work? And I think that it's always just, well, I guess what I was trying to get at is always going behind the success or failure to try and understand it is more important than just did it work or didn't it work? Yeah, I think, um, I think if, you know, when I think about that espresso machine, right, that's, that we've decided we're going to intervene, mm -hmm. we're going to create this, 
this this experience we're gonna we're gonna change something right about about my onboarding and clients of course might this actually might be part of your onboarding process because clients need to come physically to your office that's part of what it means to to hire an attorney in your case well the when you've got the espresso machine and you roll it out i think if no one's using it after a week i do think a sign is interesting right let's let's make sure people know what that beautiful sleek looking machine does and is let's also move it right maybe just physically you stuck it in a corner or you stuck it in a spot where people don't look and it doesn't feel inviting or doesn't feel like the right thing to do uh, while you're waiting for your meeting. So I think small tweaks sometimes have big impacts. You kind of make sure that it has failed <laughs> before you give up on it entirely. I think that's right. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's certainly worth the second week, right, of, uh, of, of, of trying it out. And so I think evaluating, validating, right, your design decisions really is kind of the end, right? That, that, that test, whatever you decide is going to be your test, mm-hmm. uh, is the kind of the end of step well, end asterisk, right? Like it really starts you over, doesn't it? Oftentimes we do. We loop back yeah. and we either say, we either loop back to the beginning of the design process. Oh, let's try to solve it a different way. Let's pick a different technical tool, right? Or we've built it and it's working. How can we improve it, right? Or right. Or, or we've seen, we've seen clients, you know, onboard more successfully or onboard more completely or feel differently at the end of an onboarding. Well, now let, let's go back to the beginning of that design process. Or it might also inspire you to go back to that to, to the very first step, to the understanding step, learning step, mm-hmm. and actually say, hmm, given what I've just seen as I tested this, I have new questions and I should go and interview more people or, you know, explore the space a little more or look better at what a stellar onboarding, uh, and, you know, I can learn from a uh, different industry, for example. Zach, um, let's go meta. <laughs> I had this conversation with Cat Moon a few weeks ago, but I, I, I'd be interested in your input as well. And maybe this was relevant enough that I should have set it up front, but you're married to a criminal defense lawyer. You have some personal knowledge of how lawyers and law firms work, obviously. Erin Kirsten Zhang has been a guest on our podcast before, and she's thoughtful about a lot of similar things. But so I'm curious, like in your, you obviously have experience of lawyers. What are some of the, the mindsets that you think lawyers might need to tweak or adopt or just change a little bit in order to be successful in designing? Yeah, I've got a couple. And I, of <laughs> course, don't want to say anything bad about lawyers and, or, or anyone's biases. Yeah. I think everyone has, uh, has biases. And I think it's just important to, without a lot of judgment, just notice our biases instead mm-hmm. of saying, oh, these biases are blinding us or limiting us from success. But there are similarities and differences in, say, thinking like a lawyer, as we traditionally define it, and thinking like a designer. I I think that's right. I think one of them is a bias. I think that certainly thinking like a lawyer gives you is lawyers are the expert. Lawyers are the leader and the expert. Mm -hmm. And so in any relationship that that is formed through this onboarding process at the end of it what's happened you know when i think about that kind of a bias right well i'm the expert i say as you know when i have my lawyer hat on well what that looks like and means is you need to learn our jargon you need to be steeped into the you know the 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 technicalities right and the the you know statutories and the parameters and right all of these very expert level things and I think most people are not experts. So I'll give you right. a, a quick example. As you mentioned, my, my wife is a criminal defense attorney. And I think that sometimes when, when people hire uh, defense attorneys to, to, to litigate uh, for them and, and to go to court on their behalf, they think that they want a fighter. 
I want someone to fight against the system for, for me on my behalf. And the expert kind of bias would be, oh, yes, let me tell you how expert we are at that. And I think that, you know, as a defense attorney onboards new clients, one of the unlocks is to make sure that we actually know better what the client really needs and really wants, even mm-hmm. if what they think they want coming in the door is a bulldog, somebody to, to, to go to right. court and, and be a fighter on their behalf. There's something maybe more to it than that. A, a good outcome might include some fighting, but it might also include some very strategic questions of negotiation, right? You might want to settle this case. And so one of the steps in an onboarding set of conversations and an onboarding set of communications between the lawyer and the client is who's the leader and who's the expert. And then what is the outcome that, that our client actually seeks, right? What do they really want to have come out of this process in not just the assumed, right? We, 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 we take a, a client at, at her word coming in the front door. Hmm. That's, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I think another bias of law firms is that law is not changing and the criminal justice system isn't changing or that we're not, we're not finding new ways and better ways. I feel like we are on the inflection point of a really interesting transformation in, in law if we as a broad society, right, allow this to happen. Mm. I think one of the things that, that lawyers are very stuck on is lawyers do the same thing now that they did in 1750 and 1850 and 1950. And I think that we could envision a world in which, yeah, some parts of, of law and lawyering could be, could be done by, I'll just say, uh, non-humans, right? <laughs> like what are the ways in which AI systems are going to impact the law. I think that's such an interesting thing. And that just, I'm sure, causes many of your listeners to, to, to say, oh, my gosh, like, hey, this guy probably doesn't know what he's talking about. But also, the fact that you might be a little bit scared of that or that lawyers might be scared of that, Sam, is actually opportunity, right? Yeah. How can you take advantage of these new technologies? And how can we as a society make more people right, able to do more things in the legal system with the assistance of technology, that's probably a win. And it's probably just a blind spot, right, that lawyers have, which is lawyers are in some ways very traditional, right? They do things like they've always done them for hundreds of years. But that does sound very designy to me, right? Like see opportunity to improve things, see problems, not disasters. See, yeah, you know. like I'm thinking about those as potential points of friction, which is in today's world, I might need a lawyer right? I need to hire a person and onboard him or her into my life and pay them money and do all these very prescribed set of steps. Well, I might not need to do any of those things. Could I do this myself? Could I do this with the assistance of, a, of an AI bot or some kind of decision tree or guidance system that would help me do that, that embodies, right, all the, all the smarts of a bunch of lawyers, but might not actually actually be a human lawyer. I suppose what you're getting at is that in a way we are assuming that a lawyer is the answer to a legal problem and it might not be. I'm just throwing it out there right, as like a possibility. The design yeah. thinking approach is there's a legal problem that needs a solution. Let's not assume that the answer is lawyer. I think that's interesting to think about. Yeah. And that's far beyond right what most what most lawyers get to think about on a daily basis. That's very much a, a, a meta level issue, a design level issue. So I, I don't know how to make that tactical. Yeah. But I think there are some law firms, right, that have taken that that approach and put you know, the kit of parts together to let people do things. Or, you know, when you look at a very large, you know, company like LegalZoom, they've basically done that. They've taken all the smarts of lawyers and stuffed that into other 
tools and technologies, and then now you don't need a lawyer to create an LLC for yourself. Well, and the less ominous version of that is probably stepping back and saying, the problem is actually that lawyers are doing a lot of things lawyers don't need to do. So how can we make all of those things go away and be more efficient or whatever so that people with law degrees who have licenses um, who have specialized skills can focus on those skills, not on all of the stuff that robots can do. I totally agree with that. I think when you actually look at what AI and automation and robotics and all those right big and, and juicy, cool trends that are coming, what that's going to do to the to the world of work is exactly as you said, yeah. Sam. It's going to change what we do. It's not going to take away jobs. I think in most cases, the tasks, the individual task by task, moment by moment things that you do as a lawyer are going to change and you're going to actually get more altitude. You're going to get to spend more time doing the strategic work and less time doing document review, for example. Mm -hmm. I think that's coming. And I don't think that lawyers are going away. But I think that's also true for designers, right? A lot of people who are in my world and the design side and who spend a lot of time designing buttons uh, for websites and designing <laughs> applications, little web apps and mobile apps for, for people, are, is, is an AI going to come and start to lay out right, all the screens and put all the buttons and label everything and do all that all for you? Even if that comes true, I just think that changes right, the job of a designer. It doesn't necessarily like, take away that job out of the economy. Zach, is there anything I neglected to ask you about the design process that I probably should have? Well, let's talk about this kind of fourth step, which is the, the actual create step. Mm -hmm. so, so once we come through our tests, we've looked at some options. We might have explored you know, different technologies. We might have validated and tested right, that, that idea. So once we come through that test, then I think it's time just to be super tactical, say, now you need to launch the selected thing. You need to, you know, make any iterations, edits, uh, other updates that, that you need. But I think in one day, you could have gone through this design process that we sketched out, just, just you and I in an hour, and you could have actually launched one process improvement, one optimization, one new thing that you weren't doing before that you are doing now for your onboarding of clients and now you've actually right, changed in a small way what your firm is up to and what it does. So that's the kind of that final step is a, also a very much um, a distillation step, right? You've made a choice. Now we're actually going to go and actually build one new email, one new you know, better set of, of conversation starters, one new espresso machine, whatever that looks like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever design thing that you think is going gonna, is gonna to help you improve right, your onboarding and, and build that, that, that job to be done. I think um, I, I just want to encourage everybody to be very uh, simplistic, right? Be very reductive and say, of all the things I could be doing today, what is one thing I could do to actually improve my business and improve my onboarding of, of clients? Right. That would be a great thing. So just pick one, get some design options together, and then actually do that kind of creative step and say, okay, I'm actually going to start using this new email template uh, to welcome clients to the firm or what, you know, well, whatever step in the process you, you got to focus on. And then evaluate it over time and see if you can come up with new problems to start over with. Yeah, right? I think, I think um, client onboarding is a great space to play, sure. but it's also one where you need to do, um, you, you need to figure out how you're going to measure. So measurement is going to be an important part of this. And I think, you know, using something like a survey, either formal or informal is, uh, is a great way to, uh, to evaluate kind of those options. Very cool. Like how do you evaluate whether the new designed solutions that you've created, how do you evaluate whether they're good or not? You, you've got to, of course, go back to, uh, to the market and, and to the human beings, right? And say, is this better? Did you like it? 
how did this feel? So to wrap up, to start thinking like a designer, when you are out in the world, start wondering and thinking and trying to figure out why things are the way they are. Think about problems before solutions and approach that by suppressing your ego, I guess, right? (laughs) And then when it comes to the point where you're building solutions, think in terms of testing, testing before you commit rather than committing right up front and then find more problems and fix more problems in your practice. Zach, thanks for being on the podcast. Sam, this has been so much fun. I, uh, I just want everyone to know that, you know, you don't need to be a great artist uh, to be a good designer. <laughs> you just need to, you just need to look at the world just a little differently and, and think about, you know, how, how you could, even in a day, right, make the world a little better for, uh, for yourself or, or for your clients. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.